my dear brethren and sisters, young people, we do very earnestly hope that you're going to enjoy a study of the life of David because it is indeed a very, very fascinating study. It is an unfolding narrative that at times is very, very exciting. At other times it's very, very sad. But at all times it's very, very encouraging to the exhortation that comes to us. And it's a very great shame that just so many people consider that a study of books such as Samuel and Kings and Chronicles is really little more than a dry study of history. Because all of these chapters, in fact every verse in these chapters that will be before us in this study, are very, very rich in the lessons that we should learn ourselves in daily life and also very, very rich in exhortation where we learn from the mistakes of others. We take courage from the faith and the faithfulness that is shown by others. And so a study of the life of David is a very variegated sort of study. And you might think at the start, well, it follows on chapter after chapter after chapter and it's all a study of the same thing. But it's really nothing of the kind because every chapter is different. And even a couple of chapters that God willing we will consider during the course of the study that are somewhat similar or appear to be somewhat similar are really very, very significantly different. So in other words, every chapter is different and every chapter offers us something new. There are different characters that weave in and out of the narrative. Some good, some bad, in the sense of uh, helpful to the ways of the truth or otherwise. And we learn from all these people as we go along. One other thing I'd like to mention when we start tonight, and that is that our brother Graham Hill has offered, and I stress that word, he has offered to uh, take notes and to reproduce them that will help you with Bible marking that you might want to do upon this study as we go along. So uh, Brother Graham has volunteered to, to do that so that at each following class hopefully we'll have the notes ready from the previous class. At the same time, by all means, do your own notations, uh, take your own notes down as you want to and as you feel, uh, they will be helpful to you. Uh, you probably, most of you know that I don't really favour the idea of brethren and sisters and young people writing notes directly to the margin of their Bible. Uh, it's something that I don't encourage at all. I think that you should check everything out uh, because we're all fallible and we can all make mistakes. It's a good idea to take notes in a notebook and then check those out and then later on when you're satisfied that they're right, mark them into your Bible. I always remember Brother First Mansfield told me once when I was quite a young man, never ever write anything into your Bible until two things happen. Number one, you believe it to be right and number two, you understand what you're writing into your Bible. So therefore those things are important and uh, with the help of Graham, Brother Graham uh, we'll have a little bit more assistance in that regard as well. So with those few thoughts in mind we would just like to briefly tonight uh, look at some of the aspects of the first of Samuel and the establishment of the monarchy really based upon first of Ch Samuel chapter 8 which we'll have a look at uh, in, a, in a moment. But uh, it, it really is interesting that perhaps considering the fact that we're going to have so much time in the first book of Samuel that we give you some idea of a very simple way to divide the chapter up. You can divide it up of course far more comprehensively than this but I'm going to suggest to you that a very good sort of working basis is to see chapters 1 to 7 as the birth and the growth of Samuel 
as the foundation for the development of the prophets because we know that it was Samuel who founded what became known as the school of the prophets that began during the era of Samuel so chapters 1 to 7 really deal with that and then chapters 8 to 31 take us through the transition of Israel into a monarchy with Saul as the first king and ending with his death and of course needless to say in chapter 16 David comes into the narrative so first of all just a brief word concerning Samuel we do know that Samuel was a Levite his uh, chronology is recorded in the first of Chronicles chapter 6 and verses 16 to 28 he was not of the priestly line when you note there the sons of uh, uh, Levi you'll notice that he was not of the priestly line and yet rather significantly we find that though not a priest he offered sacrifices we find that in the first of Samuel chapter 10 and verse 8 and also he anointed two kings needless to say as no doubt we're all well aware he was also a Nazarite so when we put together all the things that we learn about Samuel and we're not going to really touch on them tonight we just mention these words by way of a general introduction to him when we put all the things together that we learn about Samuel we find that he typifies all those who will be saved upon the principle of faith and not upon the principle of law and so therefore he typifies the Christ body he typifies those who will be saved upon the basis of the principle of faith so we now find that the role of the prophets takes on a new role altogether with the institution of the monarchy until the time of the monarchy being established the priests had a, uh, the prophets rather, had a different role to play. We're going to have a look at some aspects of how the monarchy started and why in a few moments time. But first of all we'd like to direct your attention to the way in which the monarchy started as recorded in that chapter that we've read tonight in the first of Samuel chapter 8. Now as a background of this chapter we'd like you to remember that for approximately 450 years according to Acts 13 and verse 20 Israel held a position that was politically and spiritually superior to all their enemies and in fact to all the nations upon the face of the earth that is the period from the time they came into the land under the leadership of Joshua and the establishment of the monarchy until that time, a very long time, approximately 450 years, they held a position that was superior both politically and spiritually to their enemies and to all the nations upon the face of the earth. And the reason for that was because they had Yahweh ruling over them. And there could be no greater king for any nation than Yahweh. But now we find that people want to change that. They want to alter that and it is very very important that we understand how they went about this and so we have a look at chapter 8 and the first verse tells us that it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel 
Now, the wording there appears to indicate that this was the general view at that time. It came to pass when Samuel was old. Now, no doubt he was in advancing years at this time. We have no doubt of that. But he still lived for many, many years after this time. So, therefore, when this was put forward as one reason why they should have a king rather than have the authority of Samuel, who of course was the most principal man in Israel at this time, it was not really a valid reason. To simply say that the brother was old was not enough. In other words, there's something that we need to learn about that in itself. And that is that if a brother becomes old in years physically, and he is unable for physical reasons or whatever it might be to fulfil his office or his role that he may have in ecclesial life, well then it's time for him to uh, decline from that position or positions that he might have and to quietly sit as a member of the meeting and to go on developing his faith and helping and assisting in whatever way he can. But simply because a brother is old or older than others, doesn't mean that that's necessarily the time for him to retire. I know in fact of one case in one ecclesia, not in this country but elsewhere, where uh, a brother was, uh, who was very uh, active in his own ecclesia and uh, he was approached by other younger members of that ecclesia and he was told that it was really time that he should retire from all ecclesial offices. He was in very good health, he was mentally alert, he was very active in the truth, and he was aged 53. Now that is very difficult to understand because that is not a divine principle. It's not a biblical principle. It is a principle to use the wisdom of older brethren wherever it is possible that that can be done. And so that lesson should be learned from verse 1 because it comes out in a few moments' time. It came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel. And Joel is a name that means Yahweh Ail. And the other one, his name was Abiah. And his name means Yah is my father. And from that I believe we should note that in naming his sons in this way, Samuel was showing his faith and he was also showing his loyalty to his God, Yahweh Ail, he who will be my strength or power. And the other one, Yah is my father. Samuel gave them those names. But how did they live up to their names? I think we know enough about the sons of Samuel to know that they failed to honour the names that had been placed upon them because both of them bore the name of Yahweh in their own names. So it says that the name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abiah and they were judges in Beersheba. We know that Beersheba was in the southern extremity of Judah near the border of the Philistines. Verse 3 tells us that his sons walked not in his ways but turned aside after Lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. Now his sons were not followers of Samuel. And yet when you think of it, this statement, his sons walked not in his ways. What a tremendous advantage his sons had. Here were sons 
of one of Yahweh's most outstanding servants. And what an example Samuel would have been to them. And how they should have honoured their father and his way of life for his wonderful spiritual values. But here is an outstanding example in verse 3. An outstanding example of the fact that the flesh is perverse. It is teaching us the lesson that righteousness is not hereditary. Sometimes we may think that it is, but from time to time. But a righteous father will not necessarily produce a righteous son. So in other words, having what might be termed good connections in the truth will not ensure our salvation. So that each one is individually and personally responsible for their own conduct and their own way of life before Yahweh, irrespective of who their father might be. And you know that in Galatians 6, I think it's in verse 1, it says there, Paul states there, that there is a burden that we have that can be shared by others, that we can share each other's burdens. But then in verse 6 of that same, verse 5 rather, of that same chapter, Galatians 6 and verse 5, we're told that every man must bear his own burden. In other words, there is a burden that we cannot shift onto others no matter how much they may desire to do so, it just, to help. It just can't be done. And that is a, a statement in Galatians 6 and verse 5 that is relating to individual responsibility. Now when we have a look at Psalm 12 and verse 8, we have an inkling here of what is being dealt with. What we have here, the principle at stake. Psalm 12 and verse 8 says, and it's a very simple statement, the wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. And you know, that's a verse that's really well worth underlining in everyone's Bible because it is just so true. And isn't the history of Israel a remarkable witness to the truth of that? The wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. In other words, when men come to power, within the ecclesia of God as we see through the history of Israel who are not walking in the ways of the truth and who want to water down the truth and who want to turn the truth into something else that is more palatable and easier to follow or whatever it might be then it is much easier for the, the wicked to flourish in the sense that restraint is cast off as we find in the days of Moses when he went up the mount and Aaron finished up making the golden calf so what we have here is a situation wherein Samuel's sons, by the very fact that they dishonoured their father and their father's way, contributed to the revolution of which we are now going to read. So again it raises the question, doesn't it, of individual responsibility. And as far as Joel and Abiah stand, where will they stand when they must stand before the Son of Man and face the judgment seat of Christ. And so they contributed in no small way to the revolution that now took place and which is recorded in this 8th chapter of Samuel. We find here that they were dominated by materialism in the latter part of verse 3. They turned aside after Luca and took brides, brides and perverted judgment. So we're being told here that Samuel's two sons were a willing party 
to the perversion of justice. And that was expressly forbidden under the law. That was not to be done. You will find in Exodus 23, verses 6 to 8, and again in Deuteronomy 16 and verse 19, that in the law Yahweh especially covered that matter. There was never ever to be a perversion of justice within the nation of Israel. And so we find here that they walk not in his ways. In verse 3, notice. But it's interesting that in the Hebrew, it's in the singular. And it should be rendered, they walk not in his way. Normally we would expect to find the word ways there, as the translators have given it in our King James Version. But it is way. They walk not in his way. And I believe that that is recorded there for our benefit to show us that Samuel, unlike his sons, was not a man of many ways, but a man of one way. And that was the way of Yahweh. The way of the truth. And Samuel's own integrity in all those matters was above reproach. In that regard, for example, in chapter 12 and verse 4, the men of Israel are forced to admit the integrity of Samuel. It states there in chapter 12 and verse 4 that they said, Thou hast not defrauded us, nor oppressed us, neither hast thou taken aught of any man's hand. So they had to admit that Samuel himself had certainly been a man of integrity. So now in verse 4, with that background in mind, we find what happened. In verse 4, then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel under Ramah. It's very important that we notice the way in which the record is written. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together. That's the first thing they did. Then they came to Samuel unto Ramah. Which means, the way it's recorded here in verse 4, that they got together and they had a jolly good discussion about the state of affairs and what ought to be done to remedy conditions. They must have held deep discussions among themselves before approaching Samuel regarding the matter. And they had worked out exactly what they wanted to do. The only thing they had not done was to consider what Yahweh would want them to do. And what they should have done if they had been acting in the spirit of the truth and in the very best interest of the nation upon the basis of God's revelation to them. So they went to Samuel. They gathered themselves together. They came to Samuel unto Ramah. And they said to him, in verse 5, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now in actual fact, what they had done was to deliver this pre-arranged speech, clearly basing it upon Deuteronomy chapter 17, and verse 14, which we're going to have a look at in a moment. Please don't turn it up yet because we're going to look at that and see the significance of it when we finish glancing through this chapter. They had had a look at the law. They were not irreligious men, these fellows. 
they'd had a look at the law and they'd seen Deuteronomy 17 and verse 14. They thought, ah, that's what we need and that's all we need. So they go to Samuel with Deuteronomy 17 and verse 14. But of course, they missed the point of what that was all about and we're going to see that in just a moment. Nevertheless, this is what they say to Samuel. Make us a king to judge us like all the nations like all the nations. In other words, they wanted to be like the Gentiles. And they did not understand or they did not realise the extent of their crime in this regard because they did not understand that what they had to do first and foremost as far as the community was concerned was to keep the world out of the equation. But here they want to bring the principles of the world into the ecclesia. Make us a king like all the nations. They were not prepared to keep the world out of the ecclesia. On the contrary, to bring the spirit of the world into the ecclesia. And this reasoning resulted in the granting of their request. But it never ever really brought them all the things that they foresaw <coughs> in the monarchy system. Because... <coughs> really with only brief periods to the contrary, the history of the kings was a record of unsound leadership. And the unsound leadership resulted in heartache and it resulted in suffering for the people. And we all know the history of of Israel and we all know that out of the whole nation how many kings were really of any great value to the people or to the service of Yahweh for that matter also. We know, for example, that after the division of the kingdom, that the northern kingdom continued to exist for another 250 years, quite independent from the south. That's a long, long time, 250 years. And of all the kings that sat on that throne of the northern kingdom, not one is ever declared as being righteous in the eyes of Yahweh. Not one. So the monarchy never ever bought them what they hoped to have. Now you'll notice here that there are two grounds for their request for a king like all the nations. One is Samuel's declining years and secondly is the unreliability of his sons. Now they were two strong points of argument for some action to be taken. Perhaps it could well be argued, certainly as far as the sons were concerned, there's no question about that. But you see, in making these two points, the question of Samuel's declining years, which was not really relevant so far as we are aware at this point, and the unreliability of his sons, though they may have been two strong points of argument, the principle of faith was totally omitted from their reasoning. You see, had they exercised the principle of faith, they may well have gone to Samuel, and they may well have said to him, well now look, we're faced with these problems. You're getting older, you're not any younger, and your sons aren't following your ways. What should we do about the situation? Should we approach Yahweh and ask for his guidance as to what we should do for the future well-being of the nation? They don't do that. In everything that they say, there is not one element of the principle of faith You see, no matter what state the nation had been in, or to put it into modern terms, the state of the ecclesia, 
whether they be the ecclesia that was in the wilderness or the ecclesia right through the centuries of time, Yahweh can always provide. Yahweh oversees the affairs of his people and his ecclesia. And you see, it's rather interesting to think that that was the way in which their minds worked and their minds were not working correctly. So no wonder in verse 6 of the chapter we read that the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Why? Because he knew it was wrong? Is that why he was displeased? Well, of course it was. But there was another reason as well. And that was because of his intense loyalty to Yahweh. So therefore Samuel's sympathies in this matter were fully and totally with his God. You'll notice here too another interesting point in verse 5 and verse 6 that Samuel was not touched by the allusion to his sons. In other words, flesh did not predominate with Samuel. We don't find here that Samuel answers these men and says, and says to them, now look, you be careful what you say about my sons. They're my boys. In fact, I believe that the narrative of chapter 8, when we read it carefully, indicates that uh, Samuel, by this time, by the time we get to verse 4 and verse 5, obviously considerably later than verse 1, at least we, in, in terms of when I say considerably later, I don't mean many years necessarily, but sometimes after, afterwards, it appears that Samuel has repudiated his sons. He does so publicly before the end of his life. He repudiates them and says, my sons are with you and I'm over here. You'll recall reading that in Samuel. But you see, he does not defend his own family, which again is very important, isn't it? Flesh and blood is not as important as the spirit of the truth. And so therefore, we find that this situation is, is demonstrated here in, in that Samuel is faced with a crisis and his only thought is to pray to Yahweh. He doesn't think about himself, he doesn't think about his sons, he cares about nothing except what God wants to be done in this situation. So it says here that Samuel prayed unto Yahweh. So Samuel made the question a matter of prayer. But the elders of Israel obviously had not. When we read in verse 4 that all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together they had a good discussion among themselves. Then they went to Samuel, to Ramah. But they had not made this situation, this developing uh, situation, a matter of prayer. But the very thing, first thing that Moses does is to make the question a matter of prayer. They had not done so. Otherwise, the thing would have turned out quite differently. All they were motivated by was political expediency, nothing else. Now we refer to the Psalms a minute ago. Just turn for a moment, if you would, to Psalm 25 and verse 9, where there is a very interesting and a very beautiful verse which shows why Yahweh listened to Samuel. You know that you've often heard it said, and we've heard it, I remember hearing it said as a small boy, that Samuel was a man of prayer, and he certainly was. There were so many things, wonderful things, that Samuel achieved through prayer. And in uh, Psalm 25, and at verse 9, there's this very beautiful little verse. It's very nice to mark against verse 6 of 1 Samuel chapter 8. Because it says here that the meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. 
You see, Samuel was such a man. And you know, sometimes, brethren and sisters, young people, when we talk about people being meek and the fact that we have to be meek, we tend to equate the word meek with being weak. But that, of course, is quite wrong. And you probably, most of you are aware that in his very excellent translation of the Old Testament in particular, Rotherham always translates this word meek exactly in the way that the Hebrew word means. And that is the patient oppressed ones. And that's who the meek really are. The patient oppressed ones. Now they are oppressed, first and foremost, by the inherent evil principles within their own nature. And so if we would serve God, that's the very first thing we have to recognise. We are oppressed by the nature that would drag us away from God, drag us away from the faith, drag us away from the way of the truth. And, and so we are oppressed in that way. But we must also be patient in that we bear whatever kind of oppressiveness might come upon us, whether it really be within our own nature, or whether it be within our own nature, plus from external forces as well, which the Ecclesia throughout the ages, as you know, as you know only too well, has suffered gravely from external persecution, from varying forces. So the meek are the patient oppressed ones, so that though they be oppressed, they will patiently await the mercy and the goodness of God and the deliverance which only he can provide. Now Samuel was such a man and so therefore that verse in Psalm 25 and verse 9 applies beautifully to the character of Samuel. The meek will he guide in judgment. That's exactly what God does with Samuel. And the meek will he teach his way. That's how he treated Samuel. So Samuel prays unto Yahweh there in verse 6. And in verse 7 he gets a reply. And Yahweh said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. A lot of us know that verse very, very well. But isn't it rather difficult to understand or to come to grips with exactly what it's saying. What it's saying is that the people were dissatisfied to have Yahweh as their king. It's an incredible thing and we might think, well, we can't understand people being like that. And yet what about in our own lives from time to time? when perhaps we are intent upon gaining a particular end or a particular objective without thinking about Yahweh or without thinking about the word or what we should do in any given situation exactly as these elders of Israel should have done here. Aren't we really showing the same kind of weakness? Mercifully we will never ever be that way as a way of life but we have to remember always to reverence Yahweh as our great king now manifested in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will reign as King for his Father over all the earth. So we must have a frame of mind in which we willingly confess that we would rather have Yahweh rolling up, ruling over us than flesh. And that is what is very, very important. So it's no good condemning Israel when really we need to take a, a look at ourselves as well. I mean, certainly we condemn Israel, but you know in the sense that I mean that. 
These people justified their dissatisfaction. But where was their faith? They weren't showing any at all. And their arguments sounded quite plausible. But the argument was wrong. So that evil could have been remedied simply by demanding the removal of Samuel's sons and a prayer to Yahweh that he might provide somebody else. That could have been done. The whole matter should have been left in the hands of Yahweh. But God says, look, they have not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me, that I should not reign over them. And the word reign is the key word in this whole chapter. Yahweh they had dethroned in their hearts. That's exactly what verse 7 is telling us. They had dethroned Yahweh from their hearts. And you know, that is an exact replica of what the people had done as recorded in Judges 21 and verse 25. That is the note upon which the book of Judges ends. It says, as you will recall, in those days there was no king in Israel and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now as to the latter part, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. We know that to be true enough. But as to the first part of the verse, there is no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel in those days. But there was. Yahweh was their king. But nevertheless, the narrative in Judges must be right. Judges 21 verse 25, there was no king in Israel in those days because the people had dethroned Yahweh in their hearts. They had put him out of their hearts and dethroned him. Now Yahweh would have provided a king if they'd wanted one. He would have provided a sound leader. So God says to Samuel in these verses that follow, look, you go to them and show them what's going to happen to them if they want to have a king. You make sure they understand the dangers that will confront them and where their request will inevitably lead them. And so as we read in verse 8, and verse 9, verse 10 and so on, all the things that would happen to them if, uh, if they followed in this way. So verse 10 tells us, But Samuel told all the words of Yahweh unto the people. So that although this was a popular idea, and it was uh, the popular view, and the majority obviously favoured it, they needed to be rebuked because they were wrong. And Samuel didn't hesitate to do that. You notice the difference between Samuel in this situation and Aaron in the making of the golden calf. When they said to Aaron, up, make us a calf, make us a god, Aaron did not have the courage or the strength of conviction to stand up to those people in the absence of Moses and say, I will not do this because... It is blasphemous and it is idolatrous. And I am not going to be a party to that. So he went along with it. And when Moses later came back and asked for an explanation, you remember what Aaron said? He said, look, it's a rather strange thing, but I had all this gold that the people gave me and I threw it in the fire. And you know what? Out came this calf. But we know what Aaron did. But you see, here is the difference between the weakness in Aaron's character that came out at that time and the strength of Samuel 
and his loyalty to Yahweh. If the people needed to have a rebuke delivered to them at the hands of Yahweh, at the command of Yahweh, then he would do it. And he did it. So he conveyed all the words faithfully and fully. He kept nothing back. He minimised nothing. So in verse 11, he's got to tell them everything that's going to happen to them. This will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, and to be his horsemen. And some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands and over fifties. He will set them to ear his ground, which means there to plough his ground. In other words, it's a form of forced labour, in effect. Do you realise, says Samuel, because Yahweh's told him all this, do you realise what you're doing? Do you realise what the situation is? You're going to put flesh over you. And you should all know what flesh is. You know, we all know the famous saying, don't we, that power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's a well-known saying in the world. And it's a very wise saying in that sense. We have only to remember later on the case of Rehoboam as uh, recorded in the first of Kings in chapter 12 and at verse 4 where the people went to him and asked to be relieved of some of the burdens. But because he took the advice of the younger brethren at that time rather than the older brethren who said to him, look, if you want to win the support of the people, if you want to unify the nation, then you listen to the people and you relieve them of their taxes and the burdens that have been placed upon them and and make things more compatible for them so that their lives will be more content to serve their king. That was the advice of the older brethren. But the advice of the younger brethren was to say to uh, Rehoboam, look, you increase the taxes. Never mind about what they say, you increase the taxes. Now that's, of course, the way Gentiles acted. And in the history of the kings of Israel, here in the first of Samuel chapter 8, Yahweh is warning them they can expect the same thing to happen to them. It's what the Gentiles did, but these people wanted a king, quote, like all the nations, unquote. Notice in verse 15 they're told that the king would require of them a tenth of their seed and a tenth of their labour and other things as well as it says a bit later on. Now we know that the law required one tenth for the service of the priesthood. Another tenth on top of that which the king would take would make a taxation in effect of 20%. And that would have been a very great amount in those relatively poor times. That would have been quite a burden, but that would have only been part of it. Verse 16 says, He will take your goodliest young men. Do you know that the Septuagint there has your best oxen? And you might think, well, that's a tremendous difference, isn't it, between the King James Version and the Septuagint. But do you know that to change that from the goodliest young men to your best oxen, requires the alteration of only one letter. Only one letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And when you consider the context in which we're dealing with here, in all probability in that place the Septuagint is right. It's not very often that the Septuagint is right in preference to the the, uh, uh, King James or a reliable version, but in that case it probably is. In other words, how could their oxen produce in the fields for them if their oxen were going to be commandeered by their king for his own wealth and his own advantage. Verse 18, God tells them, Ye shall cry out in this that day because of your king, which ye shall have chosen you. 
And Yahweh will not heal him that day. He's telling them that they would be sorry for their folly. Rejecting Yahweh in favour of a fleshly king. And those dire, dire warnings, of course, were fulfilled, as we know, throughout the history of the nation. But then he says, Yahweh will not heal him that day. Why? Because it would be too late. Which reminds us, does it not, that there is always a day of opportunity to uh, approach Yahweh. What if we're facing a great crisis in our life and we want the hand of providence to guide us and to help us and yet we don't recognise that need. We just bullock our way through the situation and finish up in a dreadful mess or everything goes wrong and we can't put things right. Then we decide to pray. Very often it's too late. The time to pray and seek the hand of God and the help of God is when we need it and when the time is right. But here it says Yahweh will not hear you in that day. It'll be too late. So there is a time when Yahweh will hear. And that is when his people are willing to listen to the counsel that he gives. And he was giving his counsel now. And they must listen now. But you'll notice verse 19 says, The people refused. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And so in this case, those who had quite an influence over Israel led the nation in a way following their own course and not according to the advice of their God. They thought they knew best. But they had taken counsel with their own hearts and their own souls and not with Yahweh as Samuel had done. So in that way they did wickedness. And so therefore they would be in considerable trouble. They said no, in verse 19, we will have a king over us. And you see to them it wasn't a question of whether Yahweh approved or not. Their great longing was to be like the Gentiles from whom Yahweh had made every endeavour to separate them. Be ye separate, said the Lord. So you see, when we ask ourselves the question, to what degree may the Ecclesia safely conform to the world? The answer is, from the first of Samuel chapter 8, not to any degree whatever. There must be complete separation. Leviticus 20, verse 26, and in four other passages in Leviticus it says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And we know that one of the aspects of the word holy relates to separation. Five times in Leviticus, that term occurs. Be ye holy and separate, for I am holy and separate. But the people say, no, we will have a king, in verse 20, that we also may be like all the nations. So they persisted in their determination to hate the Gentiles. And surely that must be a warning for the ecclesia in every age, because it was the beginning of a way of folly that led Israel into disaster after disaster. And notice what they say here about a king in verse 20. That we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now they thought, there, that's really something. That's what we need. We need someone we can admire, someone we can put up on a pedestal, someone we can put our faith and trust and confidence in. But they had someone. 
who was far greater than flesh. But they didn't want that. But you see, what they had forgotten completely when they say, when they talk here at the end of verse 20 about someone who can judge us and go out before us and fight our battles, you know what they had forgotten? They had totally forgotten Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verses 1 to 4. And you know what it deals with there? It deals with when Israel were going to go out to battle. Now most armies, before they go out to battle, when they're ready to fight, they get their generals together and they plan tactics as to how the battle is going to go. The generals come together to plan the tactics for the warfare. But king over thee. But you see, in verse 14, the full impact of that verse is that it would not be Yahweh who would make a decision to do that. In other words, verse 14 of chapter 17 is a prophecy of what is fulfilled in the first of Samuel chapter 8. It doesn't say here that their frame of mind would be directed toward Yahweh in the matter. You will say, I will set up a king over me like all the nations that are about me. Now that that is the significance of it, we can be, be absolutely assured when we go over to chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, which speaks about what's going to happen under this system of the monarchy. In chapter 28 and at verse 36, we know that in Deuteronomy 28 we have the blessings and the cursings of the law. The blessings if they walked in the way of the truth and the cursings if they did not honour their God. And so in verse 36 of this chapter it says that Yahweh shall bring thee and thy king which thou shalt set over thee unto a nation which neither thou nor thy fathers have known and there shalt thou save other gods wood and stone and thou shalt become an astonishment a proverb and a byword and so forth do you notice how particular that wording is in verse 36 Yahweh shall bring thee and thy king which thou shalt set over thee unto a nation and of course that came to an end did it not in the days of Zedekiah when that actually and literally happened so you see they set up the king the monarchy upon the basis of what they wanted but you see Yahweh was going to give them a king anyway let's have a look back for a moment at Genesis chapter 49 Yahweh had already promised if only they'd gone back further if only they'd looked to see what was in the heart of God and what his purpose was with the nation. We have in Genesis 49 the uh, Jacob calling his sons together that he might deliver a prophetic message concerning the future, the destiny of Israel, both natural and spiritual. So these are the words of Jacob, but they're inspired words. But when we look at Genesis 49, verse 9 and 10, we read about Yahweh's concept concerning the monarchy. Verse 9 says, Judah is a lion's will. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion. And as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come 
And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now you'll notice first of all, Yahweh's concept of a king and the system of a monarchy was based upon the kingdom of Judah. But Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. Quite different. We find that out in chapter 9 of 1st of Samuel. We'll have a look at that in just a moment. But you see, the term scepter there in verse 10 relates to the king. The term lawgiver relates to the kingdom. And this shall not depart until Shiloh come. We're probably aware, most of us, that Shiloh is a term that Brother Thomas uses a lot in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. And certainly it is symbolic for him. And uh, uh, of that there is no doubt. The word Shiloh has two meanings. For one thing it means one cent. And we know very well that the Lord Jesus Christ was the one sent by Yahweh to become king over Israel. But the word also means tranquility or rest or place of rest. And so therefore we know that we will only find rest for our souls, for our lives, as the Lord says in Matthew 11 and verse 28, in Him. Here's the way to tranquility, here's the way to rest and peace and oneness and unity with God. So He is Shiloh. Perhaps we should use that term a little more often because it's a very beautiful and a very wonderful term. So then we can see that by looking at Deuteronomy 17:14 and chapter 28 verse 36, and then comparing it with Genesis 49 and verse 9 and 10, that Yahweh had an entirely different purpose in view to provide a king for Israel than these men of Israel had in the first of Samuel chapter 8. But with that in mind, let's have a brief look at just some of the points that occur in chapter 9. Because here we're going to find that Saul was appointed to be the first king. Now sometimes we find that there is a a question raised as to how Saul came to be the king when he turned out to be such a failure and yet he was chosen by Yahweh because you remember God said to Samuel I'll I'll show you a man who I picked out and he's the one you're going to anoint as king. But the answer to that is of course that Saul was really the people's choice Although Yahweh told Samuel which one it was going to be, he chose for the people the sort of king they wanted. Not the sort of king of, of whom Yahweh would have necessarily approved in that sense. We know that because when we come to chapter 15 and chapter 16, and, uh, and uh, God says to Samuel, up and get thee to the house of Jesse, because one of his sons, I want you to anoint to be the next king over Israel. When it came to David, the people had no say in the matter whatever. Yahweh said, I'm going to tell you who is going to be the next king. I'm going to pick a man. He'll be a man after my own heart. He will be a man as near as flesh can, can manage, who will govern and rule the people in a way that will be in a godly manner and one who will be acceptable to me. So you see, the people clamoured for the king that they got. So Yahweh allowed Saul to be anointed in that sense. But when it came to the appointment of the next king, God didn't consult the people at all. 
He didn't go to them and say, all right, well, you can all see Saul's now dead and Saul's a failure. Well, he actually saw it wasn't dead at the time, but nevertheless, he would be not all that long afterwards. And uh, he didn't say, well, well Saul has, has obviously failed. Now we've, we've got to have another king, don't we? So who would you like me to have this time? He gives the people no say in the matter whatever, in as far, so far as David was concerned. So then, here in chapter 9, we read a little about, about Saul. And we're going to just look at a few things about Saul and some of the things that caused the problems. In chapter 9 and verse 1, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. Now you'll notice the margin, I think, renders it as substance. But the word means wealth. So therefore, the very first thing we learn about Saul and his family is that he came from a background of affluence. We asked the question, was he ever taught the spirit of sacrifice and self-denial, which the truth requires? Was he ever taught the principles of the truth? And we don't think that the evidence indicates that it was so. And so in verse 2 it says that he had a son whose name was Saul. The name Saul means asked for. But it does not appear from this narrative that Kish was a particularly spiritually minded man. And so therefore we ask ourselves, what had he asked for? Another interesting aspect of, uh, of the uh, 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 aspect of this name, Saul, is that in these times, it was a very common name for the first son. Very, very commonly used. But as far as that's concerned, we, we don't know exactly where uh, Kish stood beyond the fact that he does not appear to have brought his family up in the truth, as we shall see in a moment. So therefore, family background can have a lot to do with what happens in regard to the upbringing and the ultimate life of, uh, of children when they become adults. We ask ourselves the question, what had Saul's parents placed first in their lives and in the life of Saul? Well, we don't really know. But we do know that the truth didn't come first as we shall see in a short while. And you know, this is a great lesson here in the first two verses of chapter 9. The fact that we have not only got to bring our children up in the truth, but we've got to bring them, bring them up to love the truth. It's easy enough to teach children the truth, but to teach them to love the truth and to prize it more than anything else in life is another thing altogether. This had not been done in the case of Saul, as we hope to show. So we're told here that he was a choice young man. Notice the wording there in voice verse 2. The Jerusalem Bible renders it more literally, a handsome man in the prime of life, which probably means that he was well grown. In fact, in chapter 13 and verse 2, Jonathan is a grown man not many years later. So he was probably in the very prime of life, well grown, but he was also a handsome man. We're told there that he was higher than any of the people. And in the narrative of Saul's life, great stress is placed upon his physique. I suppose by modern terms he would have been described as a, as a he-man. But all of that had only to do with the flesh and not to do with the things of the spirit. He was higher than any other man. You see how this is emphasised in verse 2. 
And then of course in chapter 9, and we're not going to deal with it in detail, but you'll know the way in which the asses had become lost, these father's asses, and here was just a very trifling event, the loss of some asses, but the outcome of this was to alter the entire future course of the nation of Israel. And isn't that a remarkable thing, how often in life there can be very minor things, minor incidents that we don't perhaps take as much notice of as we should and they turn out to have very incredible and far-reaching effects. Now notice verses 18 and 19 here because in verse 18 and 19 of chapter 9 you'll remember that the servant that was here with Saul said look let's go and find the seer S-W-E-R, a term that was sometimes used for a prophet because he had the ability to see in a vision. Let's go and find the seer and see if he can help us tell us where we should go to look for the, the asses that we've, we've got to find. So we find here in verse 18 and verse 19 they've had directions as to where to go. They go to Ramar, of course, where Samuel lives. And in verse 18... Uh, well, verse 17, I suppose, we should look at first of all, shouldn't we? When Samuel saw Saul, Yahweh said unto him, Behold the man whom I spoke to thee of, this saying shall reign over my people. So in other words, Samuel, near his home, sees Saul approaching. And Yahweh says, look, bear in mind, get the message, this is the man. But look at verse 18 and 19, which are very significant. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate. He's right standing there and ready to enter his house and said, Tell me, I pray thee, where the seer's house is. And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Now bear in mind the fact that Samuel was the most prominent speaking brother, shall we say, the most prominent expositor of the word, the most prominent spiritual leader in the nation. And when Saul comes face to face with him, he doesn't even know who he is. Now you see, that's an indication as to how many meetings Saul had been taken to as a young child. As to how many meetings he had been taken to as a teenager when he was growing up. He came face to face with a great Samuel and didn't even know who he was. That's telling us a great deal about the spiritual education of Saul. There virtually wasn't one. So in chapter 10 and verse 1 we learn where Saul is anointed king. In verse 11 of this chapter, it came to pass when all that knew him before time saw that, as it says in the previous verse, he was uh, mixing with the prophets, all those that knew him before time, <coughs> notice the wording there in verse 11, they said, Behold, he prophesied among the prophets. Then the people said one to another, What is this that has come unto the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? They couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe it. In other words, here's a further bit of evidence about his spiritual upbringing. Saul was not known to be one who associated with spiritually minded men. Now at this point there's something very important 
as we paint this little background tonight as an introduction to the life of the entrance of David into the narrative in chapter 16, which we'll move to, God willing, at our next class. But what we must see here is a situation of the grace and the goodness of God. Now, do you know what we might imagine to have happened here? I know what I would imagine if I were just simply reading this narrative through, starting at chapter 8, seeing what the people did, appreciating the folly of their interpretation of Deuteronomy 17 and so forth. I would imagine that what God would have done in a situation like this would have been to say, all right, the people have made up their mind. They don't want me to reign over them anymore. They want a king like all the nations. Very well, here's a man. He's ideal. He's just what they want. Samuel, go ahead and anoint him. Okay, he's anointed. What would you imagine Yahweh to do now? Say, right, that's it. I've done what the people wanted. I washed my hands of the whole thing. Finish. I'll just sit back and watch the chaos that's going to come. That's probably what we do. Because we're humans. We're not divine. But we should think according to the Spirit. And if we did, we'd do what Yahweh did. You know what Yahweh did? There's a little verse tucked away in this chapter. In verse 26, that speaks volumes for the love of Yahweh for his people and for Saul, believe it or not. Because verse 26 says this, after he had been anointed, all the celebrations had taken place, he is now king. Verse 26 says, And Saul also went home to Gibeah, and there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. And I always think of that as one of the most beautiful verses in the whole of Scripture. It's the most beautiful verse. It's the last thing in the world that I personally would expect Yahweh to do under those circumstances. But that's what he did. There went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. God sent those men with Saul. Why? To show God's love for him. To show God's willingness to cooperate with him. To try and comfort him and encourage him. To educate him in the way of the truth. To give him every opportunity to succeed as the first king when the monarchy was established in Israel. That's one of the most beautiful verses you'll find when it comes to the character and the grace and the mercy of Yahweh. Of course we know that as far as Saul was concerned, these men were not able to touch the heart of Saul. He didn't really change throughout his life, as events show. But when those men went to that home, there was one who was listening. There was one there who appreciated the fact that God had sent among them into the house of Saul a group of men, a band of men whose heart God had touched. There was one there who appreciated that, who talked long hours with those men, who listened to them, who were guided, who were guided by them, and who learned to develop in the truth to become one of the most wonderful characters in Scripture. And his name was Jonathan. And he was the son of Saul. And so in that sense, we find that the monarchy came to an end so far as Saul was concerned. If we just conclude tonight, 
with a word from the first of Chronicles chapter 10, we'll see Saul's life is summarised here. In the first of Chronicles chapter 10, the failure of Saul, which was a great tragedy. You know, it's a very interesting exercise, which I did once many, many years ago, to go through the first of Samuel and just gently brush aside the other characters that are there and just look for Saul all the way through. And there were a couple of things that he did that were really quite excellent. There's no doubt about that. But by and large, the narrative of Saul's life is a narrative that goes down from one step to another, to another, to another, to another. And if you go through the book of Samuel in that way, just looking for Saul, where he comes into the narrative, particularly Saul here, Saul there, what does he say here, what does he do there? You follow his life through, it's a very interesting but a very sad study to behold. But in Chronicles, his life is summarised in chapter 10 and verse 13 and 14, where it says, So Saul died for his transgression which he committed against Yahweh, even against the word of Yahweh, which he kept not, and also for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it and inquired not of Yahweh, therefore he slew him and turned the kingdom unto David, the son of Jesse. So the failures of Saul's life are summarised in two things. He went to the witch of Endor, which was his final undoing, at a time of great crisis in his life, which could have been avoided if he had turned to Yahweh earlier, when he had the opportunity. He went to the witch of Endor, but most importantly, he committed the crimes against the word of Yahweh, which he kept not. And in that, of course, there is a great lesson for us all from the failure of Saul. So God willing, at our class next time, with that background in mind, of the way in which the monarchy was established, why it was established, how it was established, the scriptural background to it, and the failure of the first monarch, we will find where Yahweh now intervenes by sending Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint David to become king over Israel.